God is this idea that his presence is not bound by time or even by place. And even that line in the song about fill this place, this place is where you are, it's where I am. He is present. And I'm glad that you're tuning in with us today. Uh, We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. In these last few weeks, we've been walking through the last week of Jesus' life. So this is Palm Sunday, but we actually talked about Palm Sunday a few weeks ago uh, at the beginning of kind of this last part of the the Gospel of Mark. And we're getting so close to the pinnacle, which is what we're going to celebrate on Good Friday and the next Sunday on Easter, where the book has been building to this moment all along. But today we're with the disciples and Jesus in the upper room. That's where we're going to start in Mark chapter 14. So find a Bible. I will find your way there. Um, while you're doing that, let me tell you the thing that has bothered me the most as we have been studying the book of Mark. This is the thing that bothers me about Jesus, if you can say that, right? What bothers me is his insistence on including his disciples. It just feels like a mistake at this point. If I'm honest, like this is the thing that's always kind of bothered me about God, like in general, is this reality. I don't like that he relies on us to tell each other about who he is. Like if I could change one thing about God, it would just be that, that we could all have like a face-to-face experience with Jesus. We could ask him all the questions that we have. We could, you know, just see him face-to-face. But for some reason, God doesn't seem to want that. For some reason, he forces us to interact with each other to make sense of who he is. And it starts really for Jesus with these disciples. He is trying to get them ready for the day when he's going to be gone and they're going to be the ones entrusted with the gospel, telling everyone about Jesus. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest, at this point in Mark, it doesn't look like it's going very well. You know, and it makes me wonder, why is he so committed to this plan of the disciples? Why did he entrust his message to us? It seems like a mistake. I mean, he's God, right? He could have done this thing however he wants. I was thinking about it this week. Like, he could have done, he could have done this. He could have said, hey, on everyone's 16th birthday, they're going to have a miraculous vision of Jesus Christ, where Jesus is just going to tell them all the things, you know, that they need to know. Wouldn't that have been awesome? Or I was thinking about this. What if Jesus waited to show up until film was invented? Wouldn't that have been nice? And like he could have picked, like he could have picked Steven Spielberg as one of his disciples. And like he could have, uh, you know, just had like the best movie ever made where it's like written by Jesus, starring Jesus, and, you know, directed by Spielberg. But uh, like we could have just watched the movie and we would have had no questions. It would have been like, hey, he's right there. He's telling us exactly what he wants. But he didn't do it that way. He could have found far more excellent, far more efficient ways to get the gospel message out. But he chose these 12 dudes, uh, these 12 guys They gave Jesus nothing but heartache right up to the moment he ascended in heaven. I mean, they let him down. They were at times arrogant. A lot of times they didn't listen. A lot of times when they did listen, they totally misunderstood what he was saying. And at this point in the Gospel of Mark, like I'm honestly, I'm just frustrated with these guys. They don't seem to be getting it. And what we're going to read today in Mark chapter 14 is going to make that frustration even worse. Uh, Chapter 14 
It's like the closing scene for Jesus and his 12 disciples. And we're going to see like all of their weaknesses on full display. And it's going to, at the end of chapter 14, it is going to look like Jesus has utterly failed with these 12 guys. But I want to remind you, and it's important that we remember this from the beginning before we read what we're going to read today. 50 days after this moment, these 12 guys are, and a handful of others are going to start a movement that overthrows the known world. So as much as I, I look at this and I wish, like, Jesus, this is a bad plan. Just come up with something better. Like, I wish he had a better delivery system for his message or, you know, more creative with his uh, brand marketing. I cannot argue with his results. And you see our Savior's commitment to these guys despite all of their faults. And we just have to realize that maybe, you know, this whole idea of efficiency and marketing genius, that may just not be a real value for Jesus. So what I want us to do, I want us to read through this last scene with Jesus and his disciples. And it's going to be a lot of moments of failure. But in the back of our mind, I want us to kind of keep this question of what is Jesus actually doing here with these 12 guys. And what, what does, difference does that make for us 12,000 years, or 2,000 years later? 12,000 years. 2,000 years later. So, Mark has led us through the story of Jesus. The disciples were also there, like the worst supporting cast ever. Uh, and we're going to pick up right after what Roland read last week, uh, uh, the Last Supper. Uh, we're going to start in verse 26. Here's what Mark writes. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Now he says, fall away, but he's not saying like they're going to lose their faith. He's just saying like they're going to run away, like they're going to scatter. Now, instead of listening to him, this seems important. Instead of listening to him, though, the disciples turn it into like a test of ego. Listen to this, verse 29. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. And they were all wrong. They all scattered. And so here, I think, it, just real quick life lesson here. Uh, we need to observe, it is not the strength of our commitment today that keeps us walking with Jesus through tough times. Peter was like, he wasn't lying, like he really genuinely thought he was commitment, committed to Jesus. The loudness of our commitment today, it means nothing about how we follow Jesus in tough times. It is our consistency in depending on God that makes the difference. And you really see Peter contrasted with Jesus, and Peter is like all this emphatic, strong commitment. Jesus is just humble dependence. And of course, it's Jesus with this humble dependence that stays faithful to his heavenly Father. And I think the lesson for us is that humble dependence on God, it beats emphatic commitment every time. Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. 
He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Now, Mark uses a Greek word for this distressed and troubled. It is the most intense language he could use. It's this emotion of fear and bewilderment and dread and anxiety and pain all mixed together in its most acute form. Verse 35, going a little further, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So in Jesus' day, it, the custom was to pray out loud. That's how everybody prayed. That's, that's why we know what he's saying is because he's likely saying this very loudly. And, and it's notable, he calls God Abba, which it would be kind of like the equivalent of our term, Daddy. And uh, what's notable about that is an observant Jew, like that's a very familiar term to refer to the holy God. It would have been perceived as almost disrespectful, which I think is fascinating about Jesus in this moment of the most intense stress that he's experienced in his life. That's when he communicates with God in the most intimate and affectionate ways. There's like a longing for connection with his heavenly father here. Um, but this is his lowest moment, his hardest moment. Let's check in on the disciples. Verse 37, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. These are the founders of our movement, people. This is not a great look for them. Uh, verse 39, once more he went away and he prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. They are totally oblivious to what is happening with Jesus here. Verse 41, returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I love this picture of Jesus, knowing full well what was to come. Jesus gets up and walks towards it. You know, we say a lot of times God loves you. And when we say that, we're not saying like God has a feeling of love towards you. I mean, he does, but that, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that God's actions towards you are always defined by love. Even when it costs him, even when he is dreading what comes next, because he has chosen to love you, he gets up and he walks towards the thing that he dreads. That is love. It is the action of God towards you and I. Verse 43, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a, a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. 
Now, scholars will tell us that this act was uh, kind of a rejection of Jesus. It centers around the social custom of the day with rabbis and disciples, and the kiss between Judas and Jesus would have implied an equality between the two that uh, like a disciple would have never assumed with his rabbi. So it's, it's this idea that he's rejecting Jesus' rabbinical authority over him, and there's this part of this that is so personal as he looks Jesus in the eye and he basically declares, you and I are no different. We are equal. You have no authority over me. And then after that kiss, the wheels come off. Look at verse 47. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, most likely, there's some debate over this, but most likely what this was, was a failed attempt to cut off his head. Verse 48, am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. The sheep scattered, just as Jesus predicted. Mark ends with this verse, verse 51. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, Mark's the only one who records this particular moment. Uh, and it's weird. Like, I think it's okay to chuckle at this. This is probably funny. Um, but it also, like, it's kind of pathetic. And I think Mark is using this as just like a final, like, underline period nod to the fact that these disciples have utterly failed Jesus. In the original text of Mark's gospel, this is the last scene that we see these disciples. Peter appears in the next chapter, but this is like the, the end of their story in the gospel of Mark. So let's just observe something here where the disciples' story ends. Um, so Jesus picks these 12 guys. He spends three years teaching them and pouring into them and instructing them and preparing them. And here on the last night, just the last night before his crucifixion, they, they make promises they can't keep. They provide no support for Jesus when he's in his most desperate moment. They don't pray. They fall asleep on three separate occasions. One of them betrays Jesus. One of them tries unsuccessfully to murder somebody. They desert him. They, they flee in fear, and they run away totally naked. That's the disciples. How is it a good idea that 50 days from this moment, Jesus is going to leave these clowns in charge? Right? I know I'm being super harsh on the disciples, but there was not one of these guys who was ready at this moment. There was not one of these guys who had any sort of like leadership competency or even just like a hint that would say that these guys are going to start this movement and they're going to be able to steward the gospel for Jesus. 2,000 years later, the fact that we are still talking about Jesus because of these 12 guys, I would submit to you that outside of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that is the greatest evidence that we have of the grace and the love of God for us as humans. I think what we need to realize about this, like as we read this and see where things were left when Jesus went to the cross, is just 
just how confident our God is. I mean, you almost get like this picture of the scene, like it's almost like Satan up in heaven saying to God, there's no way that you could take like this group of naked cowards and start a, a movement or an eternal kingdom. And, and God, just with total confidence, stays committed to the plan. He's like, well, just watch me. Look at what I'm about to do. And then he does it. And I think the fact that he didn't set up a better system, the fact that he didn't set up something that was more efficient or more excellent, uh, the fact that he stuck with this choice even in the face of their failure, I think it just shows us this reality that efficiency and excellence are not the driving value of this kingdom. That's not what God is about. Grace, community, and interdependence are. That's what God cares about. And we may not like that at times. It may seem foolish to us at times, but we cannot argue with the results. I think this is what Paul, the apostle, was getting at uh, later in the New Testament. He says, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You look at where we're at in Mark chapter 14. There is no doubt at the end of Mark, that this movement of Jesus is dead in the water. Like the only way that this whole kingdom stuff could ever survive is if it was all true. The only way that, that it could ever survive is if the God who brings dead things to life is behind it. And, and that's the only way it had a chance because you see where these guys were. It would take a miracle, right? And uh, you want convincing evidence of the existence of God? I think it's us. We are that evidence that any of us have faith in Jesus at all is proof that there is a God behind this thing because if it wasn't, I promise you, the movement of Jesus, the kingdom of God ends in Mark chapter 14. God he miraculously, he reveals himself, he reveals his gospel consistently through the, the foolish, weak, lowly things of this earth, like these 12 disciples, like you and I, he still does that to this day. If this kingdom could be explained by the talent and the wisdom of the leadership he chose, uh, and that wouldn't prove anything, but when he takes a bunch of naked cowards and creates something that's beautiful, and redemptive, and eternal, that's lasted for 2,000 years. Now, something like that, that just might convince the most diehard skeptic. You know, I think there's a lot we can take from this and kind of attach to us where we're at. I know I'm picking on the disciples. Um, Don't email me. I know. I'm being harsh. But we have to see their failures, right? To really understand how God works through people like us. Like that's why Mark is showing us their failures. It's the unfiltered picture. And I think there's a few things that we need to take from this. I, let me just hit you with one conclusion here that I think you've got to see in this text. I want you to hear this. You are a part of this thing and it takes all of us. You are a part of this thing and it takes all of us. You know, the problem with church is not that it needs better leaders. 
I mean, it, we do. Yeah, church needs better leaders. But like from the beginning, like we read this and we realize this was never a movement of leadership brilliance. That's not how it advances. The kingdom of God moves forward through participation, not through like leadership genius. And it's when we all get involved that the kingdom advances. And we know that for a couple of reasons. First of all, because Jesus didn't choose leadership brilliance. Like clearly, he did not choose leadership brilliance. We also know that because of this. God disperses his spirit equally into everyone who believes. And we know it's the spirit of God, not our talent. It is the spirit of God that moves the kingdom forward, just like it was for the disciples. Uh, you can read it later, but there's a beautiful picture in Acts uh, where the Holy Spirit comes down on everyone who believes in Jesus, and the disciples were there, and everyone who believed in Jesus was there at the moment. And as a sign of that, every woman, every man, every child had a tongue of fire that rested upon their head. And it wasn't like, like Peter gets an extra big tongue of fire on his head because he's in charge. That's not how it worked. No, it was like equally distributed. And what makes the people of God burn bright, what makes like the kingdom advance and have like potency in the world, it's not the brilliance of like uh, the flame of one leader. No, but it's when all of those flames combine that the light of God's kingdom becomes overwhelming and brilliant. And when Jesus came to earth, there was this whole religious system with hierarchy, and it was a pyramid and all this stuff, and Jesus ended that. And what he put in place, he says, I am the high priest, and all of you are priests as well. And we see this commitment that Jesus had to his disciples, even in the face of their failures. That is the commitment that he has to each of us. The kingdom was never going to advance through the the talent of a person. It was always going to be through a people, through a people who lean in and participate. That is how the kingdom grows. You are a part of this thing, and it takes all of us. You know, there's a phrase um, that, that we use to to describe what Jesus set up, and it's become really important to me just as I think about leadership. Um, It's how he still works today, and the phrase is this, plurality of leadership. Plurality of leadership. What that just means is there are multiple people, there are multiple voices that are going to shape the direction of a group. That's why Jesus, I think, picked 12 disciples, not just one. This is why the early church, like they didn't establish once things got started like a pyramid structure. Like they, they actually worked together. They worked as a group, as a team, and it was challenging at times. That meant that sometimes they had to go slow because everybody wasn't on the same page and there were problems. Like plurality of leadership is not the most efficient way to get things done. Like if you've ever, um, like think about like if you try to pick a restaurant with a group of opinionated people, like you've experienced the downside of leadership plurality. I just realized that's like a really depressing illustration these days. I don't mean it to be, but you know, like, like it's just easier sometimes. Like if one person just makes the decision and everybody gets in line behind that, but that's not what Jesus set up. They had to work through it. They had to struggle with this. There was multiple voices involved and the Holy Spirit was in everyone. And what they discovered as they walked in it is that the Spirit was actually the one leading them, not a person. Now, I've been around church my whole life, um, and I've noticed this with church people, and I think it it could just be people in general, um, but it, it certainly is true of church people. Most of us prefer the efficiency of an excellent, polished, 
brilliant leader. Like most of us would just prefer that. Like it's simpler if there's someone who just figures everything out and we can just, you know, let's just do what that person tells us. But let me ask you a question about that. How many times has that guy let us down? Like a whole bunch, right? And yet still, we line up, well, who's going to be the next great celebrity leader? Um, We go back to it. Listen, God is not looking for the next brilliant leader. God is not looking for the next brilliant leader. Read Mark 14. He clearly, that's not high on his list of values. What he is looking for is for a people to rise up, for a people to lean in, for a people to participate. He is looking for community and for grace and for dependence and for listening to his spirit. He has always been about leadership plurality, and that's why he was committed to these guys even on this night, even when they failed. Let me tell you uh, one way that I'm trying to live this out. Um, last summer, uh, the elders were talking to me about, uh, it was like interviewing about the senior pastor role and stepping into that role. If you don't know the story, I w- I've been a pastor here at Pulpit Rock for 15 years. Uh, Thomas, who is also a pastor here, was feeling led to some other things. Uh, he was our senior pastor, and he stepped down. So the elders uh, and I talked, and I stepped into that role of senior pastor last summer. Um, and when I talked to the board, I told them something in that interview that, I, like, you all should know about me, because this is true. Um, I said, listen, if, if I do this job, if I step into this job, one thing you should know about me is I only really want to preach about half the time. Like, when you look at a year, I just want it, like, half the Sundays at the most. Um, now, that's not because I don't love to preach. I do love to preach. It's not because I, I don't want to work hard. I actually love it. It's, uh, it's very enjoyable to me, and I'm confident. I, I feel like I could pull that off. But here's what I see in the Bible. Spiritual communities are always healthier when there are multiple voices shaping them. That's true. Spiritual communities are always healthier when there are multiple voices shaping them. Church is never as healthy as it could be when the narrative is dominated by one voice. There's so many voices in the community of Pulpit Rock that like we need to hear from, that need to speak to us. That's why we have multiple people preach. That's why we have multiple worship leaders. That's why we have small group leaders and people who teach classes because we believe this, that the Holy Spirit has put something in each of us that needs to get out that we need to learn from it and that we're healthier when we can learn from it. That's what spiritual health in a community looks like. And what we see in these stories where Jesus is just like maddeningly committed to the plan of these 12 disciples, I think what that shows is just how committed he is to us in this plurality of leadership and a plurality of voices shaping the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit indwells us all because he wants all of us involved. God's not looking for the next great leader to, to like rescue his kingdom. That's not how God thinks. God is looking for people who depend on his spirit and who show up. And that's ultimately what we see in Acts and in the rest of the New Testament from these 12 disciples. Is they just they started depending on the spirit of God and they showed up and amazing things happened through them. One of us is never as great as all of us. That's how God's always worked, and that's how he's working even to this day. 
Let me just close with maybe two, two ideas, two thoughts here. Um, one is just kind of a hunch. When you look at what we're all going through with this coronavirus thing, I just, I have a hunch. I thought I'd throw it out to you today. Um, do you remember, like, uh, we read this long, long time ago, Mark chapter 2, Jesus said this whole thing about nobody takes new wine and puts it into old wineskins because the fermenting process would, like, burst apart those old wineskins. And he's talking about how his kingdom is not going to fit within the religious structures of the day. And that was true. Like, the, the kingdom burst apart the religion of the day, and something new came in its place. Um, but here's the thing. That happens all the time. A new thing will come along and like the old thing can't contain it. And so it, it bursts apart the old thing. This is a hunch that I have. And take it for what it's worth. I don't know where our world is going to go with this coronavirus thing or where, you know, what's going to happen next. I certainly don't even know. Like what, what does it mean for church? Everyone's trying to figure that out right now. But my hunch is this. There is some new wine here. I don't think things are just going to go back to normal. I think something is fundamentally changing in our world. This is like uh, like 9-11 or like the rise of the internet or like the end of the Cold War. Like there's some shift that is happening here. And it's going to forever change how we operate and how we experience community in this thing that we call church. Um, now is the time to start listening to God listening to the Holy Spirit, to discover what maybe is coming next. I, I think sometimes leaders, we can tend to hold on to those old wineskins a little bit too long. This is why innovation so often, it comes from the people, not from leaders. That's true in church too. I am so proud of what you all as a church are doing. I love what Clark said. Like, like you all are just showing up to love this community again and again. And like half the time as, as the senior pastor, I'm just trying to, to catch up. Um, now is the time more than ever that we need to be listening to the Holy Spirit to say, God, what are you doing next? And what does it mean for us as your people? What does it mean for us the ways that we experience community? Because I don't want us to be like that thing that bursts apart because we can't figure it out. I want us to be like those new wineskins that flex and that stretch and that hear from God. So let's be listening during this season. It will take all of us to lean in with some creativity to figure this thing out. Let me close with this. Uh, this might be a little bit morbid, especially now, um, but let me just close with this. 100% of us, like listening to this, um, uh, well, even not listening to this, 100% of us are going to die, right? I, like with the exception of Jesus, death is undefeated. Like it has a perfect record against all of us. Uh, so th like there's a reality that now we're all thinking about it because of coronavirus, but even before coronavirus, all of us were living with a death sentence. Now because of Jesus, what we believe is that there's life after death. And there's this thing called heaven where we're with God, and we don't totally know what that's going to be like, but it's going to be great. In heaven, we're going to have everything our soul needs. We're going to be able to do everything with God that we want to do except for one thing that we won't be able to do in heaven. The only thing we can do now that we won't be able to do in heaven is in heaven, we will not be able to participate in God's plan of redemption on earth. Like, we get this, right? He, it's not like he sends anyone back to help. 
In heaven, you will not be able to participate in God's plan of redemption on earth. It is only the living who get to partner with him and restore and repair and redeem this broken world. Only the living get that honor of participating in his kingdom, his advancing kingdom. I don't know how many days you have on this earth. I don't know how many days I have on this earth. But I know this, today, Jesus looks at you, he looks at me, and despite all of our shortcomings, despite all the things we have against us, or even the strengths that we have, he looks at us and he says, hey, you know what would be great? Let's do something. Let's help some people. Let's create something. Let's redeem and repair something. Let's convince one person that God really loves them today. And he says things like that to us every day. This is this constant invitation from Jesus into this work, the one thing that we get to do now. And there's going to be a day coming where we're going to die, and he's going to look at us face to face, and he's going to say, wasn't that fun? Listen, I... That season's over. Just come be with me in heaven. Be with me. Experience rest. But until that day, wouldn't it be so short-sighted of us to, to, to let like our, our fears or our own insecurities or our desire for safety or our desire for security, or our desire to make enough money so that we could finally retire at age 65, or our, like our unwillingness to deal with our own junk and our own issues, or our hurts, or our bitterness. Wouldn't it be so silly to let that stuff rob us of the one thing that we get to do on this earth with our Savior, with the God of the universe? Now, I know, like, like we all, it's just human nature. We all want to live for a long time. Do you know what's a lot better than a long life? It's real life before our death. It's finding it, finding real life. And that real life is found in showing up and in participating in his kingdom work. He is the God who takes naked cowards and establishes an eternal kingdom. And if that's true, surely he could use us, and surely the invitation is for us as well. Can you hear him? He is calling you to something. He is inviting you into something. What is it? What is keeping you from it? We've been invited into this thing. Let's show up. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but we today have been invited into this thing. Let us show up. Lord, I pray for my friends. I pray, Lord, that we would know the invitation that you extend to us. I pray that it would connect in our hearts that those uh, questions we have about what we need to be doing, God, I pray that they would be answered. Give us the, the confidence to show up. And even if we're lacking confidence, give us the courage to show up. I pray that we would be a people pursuing you. We trust you, God, and we're thankful for the invitation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.